The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. The Netherlands becomes the first country in Europe to reimpose strict lockdown measures as the Omicron variant spreads across the block. That is unavoidable because of the fifth wave caused by the Omicron variant that is bearing down on us. Omicron is spreading faster than feared, so we must intervene now to prevent as much as possible. London declares its own major incident amid the Omicron spike, while the UK Health Secretary calls for caution over Christmas. We're starting to see hospitalizations come in and, and people naturally are acting more cautiously. It's, uh, and I understand that. And I think it is a time uh, for a bit of caution. Good morning, everybody. Lord Frost quits as UK Brexit secretary reportedly frustrated with the direction of government and COVID restrictions, delivering yet another blow to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And a clean sweep for pro-Beijing candidates in Hong Kong's controversial Patriots-only election as turnout hits a record low. We are again on the cusp of Christmas talking about the pandemic as the Netherlands has re-entered full lockdown with all non-essential shops, restaurants and museums ordered to shut just days before Christmas until at least mid-January. The Dutch government is trying to stem the rapid rise of the Omicron COVID variant, which is on pace to become the dominant strain by the end of the year. Announcing the latest lockdown, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte urged the public to stick together through another difficult Christmas period. And now I hear the whole of the Netherlands sighing. All this exactly one week before Christmas. Another Christmas that is completely different from what we would like. Very bad news again for all those businesses and cultural institutions that rely on the holidays. A downer for all young people for whom life suddenly becomes a lot more boring. Also for the elderly, for whom social contact during the holidays is extra important. We all know someone who needs some extra attention these days. Keep looking out for each other. Meanwhile, the UK reported some 22,000 new Omicron cases over the weekend, taking the total number of infections from the new variant to just over 37,000. Around 83,000 total COVID cases were reported in the most recent 24-hour period, along with a further 45 COVID-related deaths. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has declared the latest surge in Omicron infections as a major incident. It comes on the back of a 30% week-on-week rise in the number of hospitalised COVID patients in London, prompting fears that the health system could find itself overwhelmed going into the new year. Speaking on BBC's Andrew Marr, UK Health Secretary Sajid Javid said there are still many things officials need to learn about the new COVID variant, but stressed a third booster jab is key in fighting the latest wave. 
We are assessing the situation. It's very fast moving. We've seen with Omicron, there is a, there's a lot uh, that we still don't know about Omicron. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, the, the reality is there's a lot of uncertainty. There are gaps in the data. But we must work with the data that we've got. We mustn't let you know, perfection be enemy of the good. And, so, and, the, and the things that we have learned so far, if I may just very quickly, that, and mm -hmm. I think this is important, is that what we've learned so far, that it spreads very quickly. We've seen the rise in case numbers. We know that there are a lot more people infected than there are actual case numbers. And we know that they are still doubling those infections every two to three days. That's observed data around the world. Secondly, we know much more about the vaccines and how they interact with uh, the Omicron variant. We know two vaccines are not enough. The three vaccines, you know, boost the shot. Uh, it makes a huge difference, gives you an excellent level of protection. Sajid Javid talking there. Well, other European countries are also reacting quickly, quickly to the uh, spike in infections. Germany has now banned most travellers from uh, the UK, uh, with only German citizens and residents permitted to enter the country. All passengers from Britain will have to observe a 14-day quarantine. That move comes after France imposed similar restrictions. Anti-Covid lockdown protests broke out across Germany as thousands in cities like Hamburg and Dusseldorf demonstrated against mandatory vaccines and the introduction of new rules. Let's get out to Annette for more on how Germany is handling this latest spike in cases. Good morning, Annette. Good morning, decline in the cases of the mostly spread Delta variant here in Germany, but there is a big but um, because there will be already by tomorrow there will be a Corona crisis meeting on the highest level, and the draft which I've seen, which I have in front of me, is saying that we can't handle the Omicron spreading um, without serious um, restrictions on uh, social gatherings. Um, it doesn't really say yet what kind of restrictions will come, but it sounds more or less that we're heading into a some sort of lockdown as well here in Germany. What they are saying that um, with the expected increase in incidences, the critical infrastructure of Germany, including hospitals, police stations, fire stations, emergency services, communication and electricity and water supply could be endangered because um, given the, um, the the high well, well the, the, the higher rate of infections with omicron um, a, a big part of the population then could be either sick or in quarantine and that could affect um, the critical infrastructure of Germany and that is why the, the Government and the expert council, which is also a new thing with which came in with the new government on Corona, um, is um, yeah, is suggesting that we need serious contact restrictions in order to avoid such a situation. As I was saying, tomorrow will be the day when this Corona crisis meeting will happen, and afterwards we're going to know what kind of restrictions will be in place. But one thing is sure: I think we are going to head into a uh, the direction of the. Netherlands, as it sounds now. With that, back to you.
All right, Annetta, thank you very much indeed for that. And we'll keep it um, short, I think, given the indifferent line we seem to have with you uh, with Germany this morning. Let's move on and let's talk a, a little bit about the United States. President uh, Joe Biden is set to address the nation on the Omicron variant on Tuesday as the country faces surging case numbers and hospitalizations. Uh, the president is also expected to issue a stark warning for what the winter could look like for unvaccinated Americans. Well, speaking to NBC, White House Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci stressed the importance of raising booster and vaccination rates. The one thing we want to make sure people understand right now is that when your time comes to get boosted, get boosted. Because when you look at Omicron, all the data in Omicron indicate that even with the good protection that you get, certainly against severe disease from a two-dose mRNA, when you look at what it does against Omicron, it's down considerably to a level where you really need to get boosted. If we're going to deal with Omicron yeah. successfully, vaccinated people need to get boosted. And obviously, people who are not vaccinated clearly need to get vaccinated now more than ever. Uh, let's take a look at the markets and the early action suggests some um, sogginess before the trade uh, and you can see that on the S&P and the Dow but uh, very strong calls to the downside for the Nasdaq yet again and um, this is one of the concerns for markets to so just where we will travel to from here uh, we've got so many different features that uh, clearly the interest rate story is quite dominant the Fed sounding way more hawkish than the market had anticipated last week that's a big factor for the big technology names but then the counterweight here is that you did see a surge in some of the stay home stocks again, the pandemic winners as they've been named, the likes of Peloton, Zoom Video and uh, of course some big vaccine makers too, Moderna for instance. So that was a supportive factor for the Nasdaq in trade Friday. The question is whether it holds this week or whether some of those interest rate fears become more dominant at this point while we still see of course a market that is compromised by pandemic concerns. So it was a reversal across the board, 1% down for the S&P and the Dow falling 1.5%. want to take you to the dollar. There's been a real bit in the market early on this the safe haven trade and uh, that has been quite dominant although you see at this stage euro managing to recapture some support at this stage it uh, was punished into the back end of last week and as we talk about lockdowns clearly a few headwinds for the euro but uh, the morning session it's perched higher in contrast sterling is reversing we are looking at a fairly grim situation across the uk at this point and uh, the market is pricing that in early on two tenths down Dollar is losing ground versus the safe haven Japanese yen. You're seeing support come into the market for the yen, which is in contrast to the trade we've seen in many weeks of late. So we've got about a quarter of 1% bounce dollar gaining versus the Chinese currency. We've also seen uh, pain trade uh, displayed in the commodities, and that's in oil. We saw it last week, and you can see we were coming off uh, some of the higher ranges this morning with further selling uh, to the tune of a fairly mighty 3.7%. We've dropped uh, below the 70 mark and uh, on WTI. We're still at 71 plus on Brent, but still sizable falls taking place there as we see a retreat around concerns that Omicron will impact the demand for oil, at least short term. Let's take a look at the Asian markets. It's been a fairly rough Monday trade first out of the blocks and you can see Japanese stocks down 2.1%. Although there has been a lot of uh, analysis as to the COVID situation in Japan and just to what the country's done right so far and how it will fare with the new variant. 
Hong Kong trades down 450 plus points, uh, significant near on 2% drop, 1.1 off the Shanghai market. And you can see uh, the S&P down 0.1 of a percent. We'll be getting into the politics a little bit around uh, the Hong Kong market shortly. And to European futures. This is how we're setting up for the trade today. We are looking at weak. And you can see more than 2% off the French and German markets and not too far behind UK stocks. A reversal from a little bit of green we saw over the course of that Friday trade, at least for the FTSE. Let's get out to Beat Rittman, who is chairman and partner of Porter Advisors. Beat, nice to see you today. It doesn't seem like we're going to be having any plans to see each other in person soon, having you around the studio set. We are going into another uh, full-on pandemic situation, it feels, in some countries. Just explain the ramifications here in year-end. Well, 21 has been a very strong year for risk assets and in hindsight, pretty smooth sailing, um, strong post-pandemic uh, recovery, um, uh, rebounding uh, corporate earnings, uh, low volatility, plenty full of uh, liquidity. And I think, yes, markets will um, uh, uh, end the year on a high. Um, but of course, I think looking into 22, um, I'm positive about the medium term and also equities as the asset class of choice. But I think moving into the first quarter, we are set up for quite some uh, turmoil and uh, market participants, uh, policymakers are set up for an almost perfect uh, storm uh, environment. And I think two main factors, um, the COVID uh, wave and the variants um, here uh, the next two, three months will result in uh, most likely more economic loss, more supply side uh, disruptions. Um, and, and the second thing is, of course, that the central banks, as a consequence, are caught between a rock and a hard place uh, with their mandate to secure a growth and at the same time price stability. And we have had now a week of uh, uh, tightening monetary policy in some corners of the world um, to various degrees and this is going to uh, continue but of course into the first quarter lower economic data at some stage which requires stimulus and at the same time continued spikes in inflation which requires um, uh, a tighter monetary policy so quite challenging. Beard, the title of your outlook for 2022 sounds quite treacherous. Uh, riding tides, breaks and swells reminds me of that territory when you navigate coral reefs trying to get to shore. And if we've got a positioning here in, in markets where you've got investors piling into one side of the boat and it feels as though a lot of investors very long, the technology trade still, what does that mean for stability? Do you have concerns that we could see a sell-off in technology because of this tightening we already witnessed from central banks? I think we will have heightened volatility um, and also liquidity mismatches in, uh, in the first quarter quite immediately. Um, some of the reliable leading indicators like corporate high yield debt, they see uh, clear fractures already. And we know that these markets are not liquid. This can, um, this can lead very fast to some market discontinuity and uh, uh, shakeouts and, um, and liquidity mismatches, as I said. Um, but, you know, uh, I would recommend a defensive posture in general and stick to uh, high liquidity in this type of environment and get some protection. But, um, you know, be beyond that, I think the medium term trend, I've been very 
positive on equities as an asset class the last few years and also in 21. I think that's very much to continue. I'm also positive on technology, on uh, sectors like business services, uh, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, all these um, uh, medium-term solid structural trends will uh, offer tremendous buying opportunities again. And the same, of course, is true for private markets. And it's kind of uh, interesting to see if we see a shakeout in uh, public markets. It will put uh, institutional investors more into the corner of private investments because they can avoid, of course, the short-term fluctuations uh, induced by um, uh, exogenous events or, or policymakers uh, doing mistakes. Beat, as you point out, um, the M&A activity has been extraordinary across the last year. Deal Logic putting out figures uh, in excess of $5.6 trillion worth of deal making. That's a spike of 63%. It's a, been a blowout year. And obviously, it's been based on the facts that, uh, that CEOs have been confident about doing the transactions. And obviously, liquidity has been available and the cost of money has been cheap. Now, with Omicron and with the tightening from central banks, we're obviously seeing a little bit of a shift in one, confidence, and two, the price of money. What kind of year do you think we're going to have in 2022 then for deal making? I pretty firmly expect that we will have a continuation in 22 of the record uh, deal making activity in IPOs, in car fouls. Um, in uh, uh, cross-border uh, corporate financial transactions. Uh, of course, at the margin, uh, interest rates uh, play an important role and perhaps also high corporate valuations because it gives a uh, acquisition currency. But, you know, the longer this pandemic lasts, and I think we have a, another two, three painful uh, months ahead of us, uh, there are transformational forces at work, uh, digitalization, big progress in technology, uh, also in health, health industry technology, food, um, then the whole complex of ESG, which will become more important. And I expect a structural boom in those areas in a post-pandemic environment. And that means that a lot of these corporate transactions um, are also growth-oriented uh, on one side. On the other side, there's a lot of consolidation going on, look at the financial industry where there is overcapacity in some corners and lagging technology. Then, of course, consumers get really used um, to digitalization, be for their shopping habits, but also in the educational complex. So I think plenty of um, solid reasons to expect uh, more deal making um, in 22. Yeah, what's been interesting, I think, is also that the markets have had to perform this year and the deals be done against what's been still a nagging geopolitical backdrop with tensions between the United States and China. And obviously, more recently, this buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Is there any risk at all that we end up with some kind of accident or geopolitical mistake that damages sentiment in the early part of next year? I think geopolitical event risk is certainly here and is heightened at this stage. Uh, in this decade of the 20s, uh, we moved to a more multipolar world um, 
with uh, the Western powers on one side uh, and then China and in between mid-sized uh, powers in terms of economic terms like, uh, like Russia. I think that any event risk due to geopolitical frictions, uh, let's say like the Ukrainian situation here with the Russians, uh, can be short term, have an impact. But um, I don't think really um, any relevance longer term, because at the end of the day, we don't live in a world of just pure military confrontations. Wars can be fought in the economic space very much. Uh, it can be fought in cyberspace to a very large extent. And military confrontation, we have seen the adventures of different powers and conflicts the last 20 years. They have not really led to a changed landscape and they have also not led to a sustainable nation building. So in some, I think frictions around China, around Russia with Western powers um, uh, can happen, of course, but they will be incidents. Um, they will not be of uh, longer term consequences. And as an investor in capital markets, I would certainly treat them as uh, investment opportunities. Biet, uh, can I ask you about ESG? A lot of investors have been uh, dabbling in that sphere over the course of this year and pivoting investments. What do you think the best way is to play ESG in 2022? ESG is still a very fragmented uh, space in terms of methodology and uh, indices. Um, there are different approaches. But I think the pandemic is uh, producing a fast forward in standardization. Um, which also the asset management and financial industry is applying to uh, investors and to clients. Um, I, I think this is a big structural opportunity is going to happen. It's going to be driven by policymakers and uh, regulation. But at the end of the day, also by consumers, uh, we see it. Um, consumers um, want to know about uh, the origin of, uh, of, of, of productions, of goods, uh, also of services. So I think this is a, um, a very important space. I would for the time being certainly stick to established uh, players with track records and very transparent criteria how they invest. But this is a space which will gain really uh, importance um, uh, and it will be uh, uh, triggered forward really by the result of the pandemic. Bia, thank you very much for joining us and uh, appreciate all of your contributions during the year. Merry Christmas to you. Bia Fittman, Chairman you. and Partner of Porter Advisors. Coming up on the show, we talk British politics after Brexit Minister David Frost's shock resignation over the weekend. And for more on the fallout from rising COVID cases across Europe, you can check out our Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Senator Joe Manchin has delivered a sucker punch to President Biden's $1.75 trillion Build Back Better program, telling Fox News he, quote, cannot vote to continue with the legislation. Manchin, who has been a thorn in Biden's side throughout his presidency, cited inflationary pressures as a key factor behind his decision. The UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss will take over the Brexit portfolio after Lord Frost quit the Cabinet. In a letter published on Saturday evening, Frost cited dissatisfaction with government policy as a key factor in his decision following an increasingly difficult month for the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Um, let's speak now with Philip Rycroft, the former Permanent Secretary at the Department for Exiting the EU. Uh, welcome to the programme. Good to have you with us, uh, Philip. If I could ask you, I mean, you, you've been no fan, it seems to me, of um, Lord Frost and what you've described as an ideologically driven approach uh, over recent months. Um, are you happy to see him leave? Do you think this will lead to perhaps a de-escalation of the relationship over the Northern Irish Protocol? That's possible. I think the first thing to say, it's a, an odd time for him to go in many ways. I mean, he was in the middle of a really important negotiation over the Northern Ireland Protocol. There had been some progress last week. The European Commission had made a big move on access to medicines from the, the great uh, from the GB market into Northern Ireland, which was one of the major sticking points in terms of the implementation of the protocol. We're obviously in the middle of another uh, <clears throat> pandemic crisis. So a strange time to go and to be citing concerns over the general direction of travel of the government uh, looks to me a little bit odd. Uh, maybe there were some concerns on his part um, that uh, the Prime Minister was asking him to, uh, to pull back from some of his more extreme positions um, in terms of his objectives for the Northern Ireland Protocol. So he's been replaced by Liz Truss, clearly. Uh, this is going to be a very difficult challenge for her. Uh, but there is a possibility, but it is only a possibility at this stage, that she will take a more pragmatic approach. Well, you, you've used the terminology more extreme views, but I think central has been uh, his concern about the role of the Court of Justice of the EU in the protocol itself. I mean, is it, is it your expectation now that perhaps there will be some easing of British opposition or government opposition to the court's role, and perhaps that's why he's decided to go early? That, that could, there could well be something uh, in that. It, it's been very clear that uh, uh, the, the role of the European Court of Justice is absolutely central uh, to the construct that is the protocol. The protocol keeps Northern Ireland uh, in the EU single market, and there is only one ultimate uh, governor, if you like, of the rules of the, the EU single market, and that is the European Court of Justice. So the demand to remove the role of the ECJ was essentially a threat to, uh, uh, to undermine uh, the protocol uh, as a whole. Um, so that, that, of course, would have risked um, a reaction from uh, the European Union, from the, and the Commission was talking um, about pretty serious uh, response if the UK 
uh, moved into that space. Now, the last thing that the Prime Minister or anybody else wants at the moment uh, is the threat of a trade war with the EU. So it may well be uh, that the Prime Minister had instructed uh, David Frost to back off from that. Um, but he, we, we were not through the woods on this yet. There's uh, still a long way to go to sort out the issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol, and this will be a pretty major challenge for Liz Truss. Philip, it's Karen jumping in. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic a moment ago, and this was cited by Lord Frost as well on exit. What do you make of the implications of the potential for a, a lockdown and at least the, the short-term challenge of the pandemic influencing the, the longer-term outcome around these Brexit negotiations? Well, you, you've got this sort of conflation of different issues, haven't you, in, in, in the, uh, the Conservative Party at the moment. Uh, big rebellion, obviously, uh, last week on the further COVID restrictions. And some of those people are also the same people um, who uh, would resist any compromises the government might make around the Northern Ireland Protocol. So the Prime Minister, in many ways, is beset from all sides at the moment. Some, many of these issues, I have to say, are problems of his, of his own making. And weaving a way through all of that is going to be um, is going to be interesting to see how, how he, he manages that. Um, obviously, we have uh, the Health Secretary uh, talking about the possibility of further COVID restrictions even before Christmas. That means over the next uh, couple of days, obviously. Um, and how that goes down uh, with, the, uh, with the backbenchers will, will be a big test um, for the government. So coming through all of this, uh, is the instinct uh, in the new year to say uh, we need to demonstrate pragmatism as a government, we need to demonstrate we have got Brexit done, um, so we're going to try and get the issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol sorted out, or is there some red meat thrown to those uh, rather irate backbenchers uh, by taking a, an even tougher position on the Northern Ireland Protocol? I suspect, with Liz Truss in charge of this, that her interests of Foreign Secretary needing good relations with the EU to achieve her wider objectives, that she will want to err on the side of pragmatism, that she will face a lot of pressure from within the party. Boris Johnson's also been incredibly instrumental around Brexit and uh, every uh, headline at the moment uh, questions whether he's going to survive uh, some of the latest challenges from those around him, uh, particularly if there's a lockdown declared. Uh, what do you make of his chances of survival into 2022? Uh, well, that, that's, that's always a fascinating question. I don't think he will be going anywhere Immediately, I, 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 you know, predictions in this space are, are notoriously difficult. We are in the middle um, of a pandemic. Uh, it's going to be some while before we're through uh, the Omicron wave. It wouldn't be a good look uh, to launch a leadership uh, contest uh, right now. And the Prime Minister has shown huge resilience, political resilience, uh, in the past. Clearly, his electoral allure has faded and has faded really astonishingly fast over the last few weeks. I think a lot of people fed up with what they see as rather tawdry, self-serving behaviour uh, on the part of, of politicians in, in the governing party. Um, but the, the conditions under which uh, he either falls under his sword or there is a, a, a leadership challenge... I don't think have been reached yet. 
Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens next year. Um, but you know, some folk are talking about uh, late spring, early summer as being the critical moment for him uh, in terms of it being a challenge. I think one thing is for certain, I suspect he had ambitions at one stage of people were talking about him being a you know, prime minister for 10 years plus. I don't think that's going to happen. I think he will not be, uh, at the end of the day, one of our longest serving prime ministers. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.